Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Trent Bernard. <laughs> Righto. How you going? Good. Good. Well, we put Churchill to bed. That sounds terrible. Hitler before that. This week on the Warrior U podcast, we're dissecting Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Um, between the three of these guys, you'd pretty much come up with the uh, the playbook for leadership. The do's and don'ts, I think. Might just stop the season. Rightio. Born in 1881 to a Turkish family in Salonika, the Ottoman Empire, which is now... Thelasoloniki. Thelasolonik. Thelasolonika. Anyway, it's somewhere in Greece. I've not been there. Although I have been to Sorrento. Is that Greece? No, that's Italy. Oh, God. Correct. Been somewhere in Greece. I've been to some island, um, which was thoroughly enjoyable. And his father was a military officer, so much like your son's father. God, I don't know. This is going to be an obtuse. This will be in a really obtuse podcast today. He attended a secular school and later on joined the Solinica Military School in 1893. And in 1899, he joined the Ottoman Military Academy, graduating yeah, in that, 1905. This all lines up nicely. And that uh, academy still exists. It's one of the longest running military academies uh, in the world. Yeah, he he always uh, he was always keen to to be a military officer. In fact. He refused to go to a religious school. His mum wanted him to go to a religious school, but he was uh, he avoided that. And during his time as an officer cadet at the uh, War College, he was exposed to European and Asian influences. And that's where he started to get some of his uh, belief systems and some of that, that background that he later used. He studied Napoleon, guerrilla warfare, strategy, tactics, those sorts of things. Mm. And, uh, and that led him to believe that maybe Muslim modernity might be better attained through a more constructive type of Napoleonic figure. So right from the start, he had this uh, set in his mind. That's interesting. So he'd, he'd actually studied history and taken good pieces out of it, much like what we're mm. trying to do here, I guess. You know he was in prison for a while. He was an anti-monarchist, and then he was pardoned, as you do. He joined a revolutionary group of military officials who sought to reform the Ottoman Empire, and reform it he did. And he was posted to Bulgaria, Syria, and Libya, to uh, to further prove his leadership abilities, yeah, he used to uh, he used to also write in an underground newspaper as well, which was quite uh, quite divisive, and it sort of uh, led to him being on the outer. And I think that's what uh, led him to going to prison. To be honest, um, what, what would be the yeah, well, what would be the communique of the day to soldiers like don't and what we don't want you to do is have your own Instagram account or write on <laughs> underground newspapers. Yeah, Mustafa, looking at you, Mustafa. <laughs> Yeah, while he was in um, while he was in Syria, though, that's where he started to get uh, some of those military skills mm. and accepting responsibility, exercising authority. So he, he really did his apprenticeship uh, out there, mm. um, and was he was able to to really get his grounding. But he became more anti Ottoman while he was out there, and uh, later on, when he fought in Libya, he he won acclaim uh, through his personal magnetism, his speaking skills. He 
he was really developing uh, his leadership skills, uh, and he and that's where he learned how to uh, apply firsthand. He's previously studied theories, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare, psychological operations, those sorts of things. But he was, you know, really disgruntled with uh, the Turkish military at the time, the the whole piece around corruption and unprofessionalism and things like that. He really wanted to drive modernisation through the army at the time. Do you think that he was he was not pro the Sultan and he was more mm. more around multi party politics? Like he wasn't looking for democracy per se, but he was certainly a forward thinker, wasn't he? From what from what I know of him, he actually did uh, consider himself as a fellow of Western democratization. Is that right? And whilst he did, you know, have a dictatorial streak to the way he imposed his modernization program, he he was aiming for a modern democracy. In fact, he saw himself as a friend, a close brother or close cousin of the US because mm. later on down the track as he took them through the war of independence, he saw that uh, similarity between the path he was taking uh, Turkey through as Washington did. So he yeah. saw himself as an equal to Washington. Wow. Now, mm. it's interesting because Turkey was going through, well, no, not just Turkey, Europe was going through a really chaotic, tumultuous time in the early 1900s. You know, you had the, the Franco-Spanish uh, War previous, no, you had the, the Italian-Turkish War, 1911, um, mm. And then the Balkan Wars in nineteen twelve to thirteen, and the and the Ottomans were, you know, they were up against it. Uh, they were up against it on multiple fronts over multiple years, and he saw service in all of those. Yeah, on the Bulgarian front in the Balkan Wars uh, preceding World War One, mm. and that that's where he further developed his staff staff work, his staff training, integrating mm. intelligence, mm. logistics, uh, you know, the science of logistics, communications, and staff functions, those sorts of things. And it, it just further it further cemented his concern about the Turkish military, and he was deeply concerned at that point. Uh, he, he too saw the writing on the wall for future, uh, a future world war, uh, as did many other uh, senior leaders around the world at that mm, time, yeah. and he just he knew they weren't ready. So it's fair to say he saw a lot of service prior to World War One. Indeed. Yeah. Um, all right, so to start off with, Inspiration, motivation. I should caveat this today with saying that you know I'm a pretty high scorer. Um, ten out of marker. Yeah, ten out of ten. So in his military career, he used. You know, he obviously had a big personality. He um, mm. believed in nationalism. He would make decisive decisions, inspire those around him to follow his objectives. Uh, would show clarity in his goals and would drag people along. He used his knowledge of the human terrain, um, appealing and was persuasive. He had a persuasive personality to convince the Turks, for instance, to fortify Gallipoli and repel the Allied invasion. And as we said last week, you know, when a nation is fighting on its home soil, it's pretty easy to motivate them. Yeah, yeah. you talk about human terrain, but he was actually an extremely good tactician. Mm. And uh, this was evident very early on uh, during that Gallipoli campaign. It was actually, it was actually Ataturk who, uh, as the commander of the Divisional Reserve, where he identified Chunuk Bear as, as the decisive terrain. It was the decisive terrain for the defence of the Gallipoli Peninsula. Mm. And he moved early and without orders from his superior commander and committed his reserves to holding that ground. It's a, and that's an interesting story uh, in itself. 
And and he was up, as we talked about last week with Monash, he was up against mm. some fairly intellectual tacticians in their own right. And they had German military advisors, which we, we have to continue to probably remind people. But yeah. Gallipoli was, for him, Gallipoli falling, the Allies making inroads... What we're now talking about is the is the end of the Ottoman Empire, the end of a long reign of how many how many hundreds, if not nearly a thousand years. Well, it shows it shows what a nationalist he was as well, because he had no love for the Ottoman Empire. Mm. It wasn't the Ottoman Empire he was fighting; he's fighting for. He was fighting for his nation mm. and its people, and particularly and later on um, after the war for independence, he actually gave credit to to the peasants. Uh, for uh, for the victory, and uh, it just goes to show the type of person he was back there. He he fought like the the entire country depended on it, and of course it did. I wonder if it's too long a bow to draw to compare the Turks of you know that sort of time in history to Australian soldiers. I wonder if because I, I mean I know that people saw some similarities with the with the nation. Yeah, it's it's um, it's hard to tell. I mean I. I no expert on the society at the time, but certainly, uh, certainly they were, from what I understood, understand of of the community, they were largely peasant-based, mm. uh, agricultural. Which you know there there are some similarities to the Australian uh, mm. uh, Australian nation, but mm. by comparison, I think Australia was far more modern compared with Turkey at the time. Yeah, and I suppose culturally, very very different um, when you consider. Mm, indeed. So you know, he was passionate, had charisma. Nationalism appealed to the masses. He was um, had you know had mor- high moral courage. He could raise the morale of his troops. He saw troops and emphasised with um, Kemal, seeing them accept different missions as part of the greater good of defending Gallipoli, and so that that strengthened the resolve and cohesiveness of the mission in the minds of the soldiers and their effectiveness. So he really was a servant leader. Yeah, I agree. Um- and you know that highly motivational leader on the battlefield. He he uh, he genuinely grabbed fleeing Turkish soldiers who were you know fleeing the advancing mm. uh, Allied forces on the Gallipoli Peninsula, and it forced them to lie down you know on the high ground and commanded them to uh, to defend that position. And when they told when they told him they had no ammunition, in the, he said, "Fix bayonets. I, I do not expect you to attack. I expect you to die." Mm. Um, and 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 literally in that time that it takes you to die, uh, more people will come and take your place, mm. and we will hold this ground. Essentially, that's um, that's what he uh, he said to his people, and and he was given you know the German Iron Cross for that for that particular action mm. to hold that position. Mm. Incredible, and you know it's it's not a long bow to draw either to say that he was seen as a hero when the Allies left the Gallipoli Peninsula. He he had mm. single handedly saved. The Ottoman Empire is the way that it was seen in in folklore and 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 the rumor and innuendo must have started to get around and and this then saw him appointed to commanding the Caucasus and Palestine fronts during the end of the war, um, where he mm. applied the same tactics he had applied at Gallipoli to inspire the soldiers. So we talk about leadership being an energy transference. It's not necessarily done standing on the soapbox. It's done in all those one-to-one conversations. That's where the energy magic is happening from a leadership perspective, and he showed that he could do this. You know, and, and I, I understand how uncomfortable it must be for Australians to hear, you know, about our loss at Gallipoli and then to hear on the other side about us glorifying mm. a leader like himself. But you have to give credit where credit's due for, for what he was able to achieve 
in in the face of you know what was pretty pretty significant firepower from the ocean and then if it wasn't for the terrain i think yeah they would have been done for but he certainly helped them hold their their line and their resolve yeah i i agree um and also to say that we we glorify Ataturk, i think i think history has has been pretty fair to him and and mm. he he takes a lot of credit for uh, for everything that he did, and rightly so, for mm. you know the defence of uh, Turkey and modernisation of Turkey. He also gave credit to the Australian soldiers, mm. and, and you know in that famous uh, epitaph that he's uh, as part of his speech, telling you know the mothers of Australian soldiers not to cry because um, they're, they're now you know the the bodies of their their sons are now resting in in Turkey. So mm. you know I think. I think he was uh, goes a long way for healing, doesn't it? Really, it it does, and it and it shows the type of person he was. Mm. What did he get up to after World War One? Do you know? Well, he uh, then led led the uh, Turkish uh, war for independence against the occupying forces mm. of Turkey and transformed the country. And he was, he was um, the leader of the Turkish nationalists, right? Which saw him inspire mm. people and project. He was projected as the true leader of the Turkish people, which was solidified upon their victory in the. In the war, his sole leadership saw him recognised as embodying the values and responsibilities of being the true leader and inspired Turks to fight for their independence. What do you think of that? Well, it's possibly a one-sided view of Ataturk's leadership yeah. uh, style because, uh, you know, as I've said before, he also cajoled, he forced and bullied support through his time as a leader, but particularly during the War of Independence and through forcing forcing through his reforms later as uh as the leader of the country. He wasn't just an inspiring leader. He was a forceful, at times, overly assertive, cajoling, threatening leader as well. He was definitely able to create a nationalist narrative and agenda and a vision for people to follow. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Mm. What do you think, you know, the success of his motivation really seen in a relatively little opposition to his reforms and massive public approval? He was pretty much able to change anything and get it into you know get it into the government or, or get it changed. Yeah, he he had uh, quite a close cohort of friends mm. uh, that were around him. His advisors were um, many of them mm. were actually uh, officer cadets with him, and they'd come up through mm. the ranks mm. with him. But he was always the leader of them. He had more energy than anyone else. He, he's the hardest uh, worker in any room, right? Is uh, that he was the. Yeah. That's and that's why he dominated one hundred percent. But uh, there's there's a there's a really good story about uh, Ataturk where he was sitting in a cafe, and he was a uh, a young officer or an officer cadet. I can't remember exactly. Mm. He's sitting in a cafe, he's sitting there with his mates, and one of them asks, "Hey, what do you want to what do you want to be in twenty five thirty years time?" And you know it's that old story. You know what what's mm. your plans for your future? And, and one of them said. I want to be, they're all army officers at the stage. I want to be the foreign minister. And another one says, I, I want to be a, a general in the army. And, you know, they go on to talk about these very senior positions in government and the military mm. and those sorts of things. And Ataturk at the time looks at them all. He's the last to speak. Let us talk last. Mm. The last to speak. And he says, I'm going to be the, the one that appoints you to all of those positions. <laughs> That sounds pretty cool. That's a good story. I like it. Do you reckon that's true? Uh, well, it uh, it comes from a family member of one of the people that was at the conversation. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's it's safe to say that he also, and we'll get on to some other stuff in a minute, but he grew into the role 
So not only mm. not only you know once he was in, as a statesman he started to grow older and become more father like and and then become the father of modern Turkey. So some of the pros he demonstrated consistent inspiration throughout his military and political life. What else able to develop and grow leadership from being a battlefield commander through to the president, able to inspire people in both a military and political sense. And he had flexibility in his in his leadership approach. He was able to make strong, decisive decisions and take action, full responsibility, accountability for what he was doing as a leader. His reforms turned an archaic, conservative political and social system really into a modern, progressive democracy, demonstrated by the level of his inspiration into that and then by the amount of people that followed him and didn't really buck the system, to be fair. They just went along with yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. His continued adoration also demonstrated the lasting influence that his motivation had. Um, and he used this is the thing too. This is interesting. I thought he used nationalist rhetoric, his own personal courage, stories and narratives, his hero status. You know, he that demonstrates a flexibility and pragmatism in the way that he approaches the leadership style. And he kept a technology re- as well. Technology. Right. So he was a avid user of uh, the telegraph. Yeah. Propaganda psyops. Now, uh, in- so he, interestingly, interesting. interestingly conservative Islamists within within Turkey didn't love him. Mm. Um, and that was probably the only con out of all this. So the pros outweigh the cons. And but he was able to he was able to control them and and, and it never became an insurgency during his era. Yeah, he's he was um, in this aspect I think he was quite astute. And the reason why is because one of his closest advisors and friends was in effect uh, the senior member of the military, he was also a devout Muslim. Mm. And any time that he was getting severe pushback from the religious leaders to towards his reforms, he would dispatch uh, this particular gentleman to go and have a conversation over a cup of coffee with, uh, mm. with the religious leaders and, and smooth the waters. So he knew when to deploy his key assets to get his key messages across mm. and... And because of that, that trust and relationship, uh, he was able to bridge that divide because he was no fan of religion being involved in government at yeah. all. And that was, and that's, and that was one of his major reforms, of course. Yeah, that is interesting. He was able to control that narrative, which we talk about a lot as leaders should Indeed. communicate everything, communicate often. Yeah. Okay, providing purpose and direction. I gave him nine out of ten, Trent. So his initial capacity as a World War I commander, you know, you have to bear in mind his goal was to ensure Turkish victory and repulse Allah. He it wasn't going to be on his watch. Mm. He wasn't going to fail. So he led the Ottoman Fifth Army in defending Gallipoli. He sought to compensate the British for naval dominance by defending the heights of the peninsula, which shows, you know, tactical being tactically astute. He correctly anticipated the Allies would attack where they did attack and slowed the invasion and drew it, drew it out into a, a campaign of attrition, really. Used yeah. his knowledge of the terrain to ensure the Ottomans held strong defensible positions and also made sure that there were counterattacks to everything that the Allies did. Yeah, he, he did that um, He did that more than a couple of times as well. And even when they were completely... Even when his troops were completely exhausted, he would force them to counterattack regardless of their levels of exhaustion and, mm. and, and what had been going on. Uh, during the previous attack by the uh, by the Anzacs, he really was down there in amongst it, leading, providing purpose and, mm. and direction. And then yep. after after that success, he he then went on to fight the um, the Russians. 
in the Caucasus controlling the whole yep. um, Turkish armies. And Enver uh, Pasha was the commander previous, and his focus was victory at all costs um, and targeting Ar- Armenian civilians rather than Russian soldiers had led to the had led to the Ottoman uh, armies being defeated on a couple of occasions. But Ataturk used the similar tactics that he used at Gallipoli, really drew it into a, a stalemate and then used the terrain to his advantage. He was quite, a stu- he was a, quite an astute tactician and you know, readily able to identify you know, the centre of gravity of the enemy and decisive and key terrain and those sorts of things that are just vital for defensive battles. Yeah, so the, the previous commander of Enver Pasha, I don't even know what I'm saying there. I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> As a result of the Sultan allowing the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire and occupation of its territories, Ataturk's next goal became ensuring ensuring the independence of Turkey and reversing many of its terms of surrender. That's interesting. So that already lost the provinces. Yeah. So at the end of the at the end of the war, um, uh, I think it was the French, the British, Greeks had largely carved up. The, the rest of their provinces, there was only the heartland left. Yeah, right. And they were, they were going through the process of, of chopping it up and mm. uh, saying, well, you have this bit, you have this bit. And, uh, you know, that was that was the last straw, essentially. The Sultan actually commended him to death. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he committed him to, uh, to death in absentia. Yeah, wow. And, um, mm. but he was then, <laughs> then at victory in the 1919 elections. After leading anti-armistice candidates saw him um, able to effectively guide the Turkish independence, so he had all these leading anti-armistice, you know, people rally around him, and mm. and then he he buoyed up their political um, objectives and became the front man. Must have taken That's huge right. guts. Pretty impressive. Yeah, and he opposed the Sultan's authority, and yeah. He was just he was just really someone who Turkey all rallied behind, and I think it was the Gallipoli victory that really started that that sort of movement yeah well i mean he'd always he'd always had that modernization objective he didn't he didn't see the the sultan mm. you know it was already decaying the whole country was already decaying prior to world war one uh let alone after it and you know with the loss of its provinces and the economy having collapsed and those sorts of things and, and when he went out into uh, uh into the regional areas um and you know they, they tried to recall him and they you know, ended up convicting him and, and um, you know, sentencing him to death. That's, that's essentially where he started to, to raise his army uh, mm. of peasants um, to uh, overthrow, the, overthrow the Sultanate. And luckily, luckily he did, because otherwise a few years later they would have been talking mm. Greek. Well, I- indeed, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Because the Greeks hadn't forgotten history from a long time ago and they were still, they were still moving towards the Ottoman Empire and, ta- and taking, taking mm. land. Yeah, and I think it was around. Was it nineteen twenty-two Battle of Sakaira? Uh, yeah, it's one S- thing we've learnt through this so far is that I cannot pronounce anything that isn't Australian. Um, <laughs> Sakaira. Yeah, interesting. Before, Sa- yeah. before before that uh, uh, before that battle though, the the Greeks had attempted to to invade and and overrun Ataturk and his uh, you know small defensive forces. Mm. Um, again, they were quite agricultural. They were they were peasant based, very uh, guerrilla warfare, rudimentary weapons. It was guerrilla warfare, and based in a in a region of Turkey that was quite difficult to get at. Mm. Uh, you know, there was no 
um, there was no railway lines out there. You had to be on horseback or on carriage to get out there. So mm. it was quite isolated. And that, that was a problem for anywhere outside of metropolitan areas of, of Turkey was that it was all quite agricultural and still isolated, very backward uh, mm. in that respect. And despite that, um, the, the Greek expeditionary force was routed. And that's that gave not only uh, Ataturk... And that's 100,000 troops on the ground with artillery and air support. No, that was see see that was um, that was about a year. So that was about a year later. So oh, this was right. earlier. So the first battle, the Greeks worked out that they were up against uh, someone, even though it was a peasant army that mm. uh, largely largely uh, was quite effective. Mm. And they all surprised themselves, and the Greeks were surprised, and and even Ataturk to some extent. And it was a year later during this battle that they came back with a hundred thousand troops with air support. Not not a huge air force, but uh, some air support, artillery, those sorts of things, mm. and um, and essentially Ataturk drove them into the Mediterranean and then and then sacked their towns. And what what was the the second order effect after that? Was there a treaty at all, or was it pretty much just done and dusted? Yeah, the Treaty of Lausanne in nineteen twenty three. Um, was that, yeah, Atat- was that, that follow-on, did it? Okay. Indeed. Yeah, so he insisted on no allied control of any Turkish finances or territories, uh, especially the Dardanelles. Mm. And his insistence on the Turkish independence, coupled with his continued victories in the war, uh, saw the Allies accept sovereignty and recognise Ataturk as the president of Turkey. See, largely Greece was representing the rest of the, oh, the, rest of the Allied forces, so the mm. French and the British, mm. it, but it was predominantly the the Greeks that uh, were, you know, doing the attacking, and uh, and they lost, and so that was it. And it essentially defined the borders at that point. So you've got to remember now we're talking eight years after Gallipoli. Yeah, eight, eight after yeah. Gallipoli, and and, yeah, and and about five five years or yeah, four or five years after the end of the war. And he's now president of Turkey. He's modernising it socially, politically, economically. Um, it's democratic for for use of a loose term, and he was protecting it from communism and fascism, which was to the top of him and the left of him. Um, yeah. And he banned far left and far right parties completely, so they could yep. protect democracy. And yeah, his part, his party, the People's Party, was the only political party in Turkey, allowing him to effectively rule without you know whilst also using elections as a means to measure his popularity really he's just yeah, asking people indeed. what they thought of him and he made sure there was a separation of powers between judiciaries legislative legislators and the president so it, it all seems to me like real modernization and he he sought to diminish the influence of islam in turkey although not outlaw it but he did ban the caliphate, well, the idea of a caliphate, and made all education secular, banned Sufi religious orders, and eliminated Islamic courts. I mean, this is modern stuff in the night. If you think about that, in the, what was it that drove him to be so opposed to Islam running political structures? His education. Mm. So he'd studied widely the Western powers and the Western systems. And he was, I think, embarrassed, like hopeful for the future, but embarrassed by the state of his country. And as he travelled around, you know, in his early military career, he was actually able to compare what Turkey was experiencing to the Western world. And Mm. certainly 
that education reinforced that. And he 100% knew mm. from, an, from the early on that there was little future for Turkey without modernising and westernising. So he was, What would the world look like if, if, yeah, for sure. if Turkey had become an Islamic state of, you know, as in purely driven by Islam in the modern world? I mean, that would be... Well, it largely it, it, it largely was at the time. Yeah, that's what he that's what he was fighting against. Mm. Uh, you know, and up until well, up until recently, it had a very strong connection with the U.S. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, strong... Mm. strong allies and and you know i'm not tracking exactly you know the level of that strength now but um certainly it, it had a very strong relationship with the with the u.s i've been there in recent years and i mean there's obviously been a lot of reporting as well around around turkey's mm. position in recent years but it's safe to say when you talk to turkish people on the street they really are progressive like they're you they're, yep. they're for all intents and purposes they they are nestled in between the Middle East and Europe, and and it is a melting pot of ideas. And yes, yeah, in my mind, it's successful at this point. Yeah. Um, and so he opened up political participation, you know, to multi-party elections in 1930. Yeah, and and economically nationalist in the in their thought, he won every election until his death in 1938. Whilst he was a dictator. Um for a period of time, or largely a dictator for a period of time, he he did intend to always give it a Western democratic uh, structure. Yeah, he was. You know, that he was, was. That's what he's building towards. Democratically dictatorial. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, but he. Yeah, but he. Uh, you know, that that wasn't uh, that wasn't the only thing he did mm. reforming the political system. He did so much more, like developing the modern. Railway network, you know, I was talking about before. Oh, before, you, sorry, before you go into that, just one point. He he, yeah. he he ensured that the army was independent of of not only Islam but also the political system, so it wasn't commanded by someone within the political hierarchy. It was it's very similar yeah, setup right. to what we've got in Australia now, maybe well, a little bit looser actually, because and the reason for that is so that so the army could actually launch a coup, you know, deliberately yeah. launch a coup. To protect Turkey's secular democratic constitution, if it was infringed, so well, it did, it did so recently. Well, it ha- well, it di- well, it well, it well, it tried, right. tried. How'd that work out? But by ver- but imagine if if you had been told that in Kamal's vision, so if you were the general in charge, you've now got the power to think about what Kamal would want you to do, what Ataturk would want you to do, and I wonder if that played into recent. Years events. I never realised that until he did the research for this that the army was actually set up like that deliberately to try and stop it from becoming. It's amazing. Secular, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it is amazing. You to know, to and, protect and it, sorry, to protect it so that it would remain secular. Mm. Secular. That's mm. right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like I was saying, yeah. uh, 
he did so much more than that as well. Uh, and in, in this short period of reformation, he, he developed the modern rail network, um, the modern banking uh, sector, which was based on the German Germany system. Yeah. Uh, the new penal code based on Italy's uh, civil code based on Switzerland. She's taken all you know, the best. He, he, he well, absolutely, which yeah. just shows that he was widely read. And he had a he had a grand vision, and he wasn't doing it slowly either. Yeah, you know, he personally pursued uh, the application of all these reforms. He was a role model. He actually went about and was participating in the in the design and the execution of the rail network, for instance. He was absolutely front and centre. I don't know where he had time to sleep uh, yeah. and do all of this because he did it over a period of six years. And yeah. not just that, he it, uh, a whole bunch of social reforms as well. I'll tell you what else he did. He um, made men and women equal legally in 1926. Yeah. I mean, we're talking 50 yep. years <laughs> earlier than some Western nations and passed bans on, on veils for the Muslim women. Like he didn't, he yeah. didn't see, he, he want, yeah, what was that in his mind where he, he took the best of Western civilization and said, mm. let's adopt this. And can you imagine yeah. the pressure that would have been against him? That's right, the religious uh, side of the house. But he was married for a couple of years uh, to um, a woman named Latifa. And she was one of the first to move around, and he he valued Latifa um, highly and uh, and loved her dearly. Uh, she was one of the first women to move around the country unveiled. There's actually video footage of her doing it while he's on you know one of these grand tours with all of his advisors and those sorts of things. Yeah. But he also banned the fez, you know, the the Turkish headdress, the yeah. fez. He he banned that um, mainly because the fez represented the symbol of previous you know ottoman empire so yeah. it was a symbol of the ottoman empire so he he banned that and he also introduced um western names particularly surnames right you know we we think that we think this is um mm. you know, we take that sort of stuff for granted but yeah he introduced it and the the um the new alphabet modified latin latin characters yeah so it made uh, literacy uh, and education simple for uh or, well, it, uh, doubled, it doubled the literacy rate in, yeah, in 20 years. It doubled the literacy rate in, in Turkey. Um, yeah, and he, and he moved to protect women's rights and gave them political rights in 1934. Uh, and there was more Turkish MPs being women than in the UK and the US combined. Yeah, 18 of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, obviously, because they probably represented half the population. There should have been half, anyway. Um, he also promoted education, accelerated rapidly under his leadership. He um, promoted strong nationalism through a policy of Turkification, um, which sounds like making great, you know, chicken and eggplant and sun-dried tomato sandwiches, but it's not. It was about the history, language and culture of Turkish society, you know, and yeah. showing the best of it. And I, I think that he probably yeah. he probably saw it as a, as a modern version of of Italy and Greece as well, you know, and sought yeah. where they could become a Mediterranean sort of nestled in between Europe and, and the Middle East. Um, and his view was absolutely realised. There yeah. was co-education of women resulted in 10% of uni graduates being women at the time of his death in 1938, which in, in the world standing was huge. Um, yeah. The uh, the elimination of poly, polyamy. Um, uh, polygamy, yeah. Polygamy. polygamy. So, yeah, so multiple wives. Mm. I mean, I can't forgive him for that. Right, I'll leave that one alone. I'm joking. 
the, and equal inheritance rights. Yeah, and Western Western clothing. Uh, right. So he, yeah. So you know, it goes back to that statement about the Fez when he got rid of the Fez. Mm. It was uh, he, he literally introduced the wearing of the hat. So he said, you know, we're going to get, we're going to wear shoes. Um, and he said this in a speech, uh, really uh, quite an empowering speech. And he talked about we're, we're going to wear shoes, we're going to wear trousers, we're going to have shirts, waistcoats, jackets, and this, this is called a hat. Um, and we're going to wear this. You, you need to have a head cover that has a brim that's called a hat. Mm. And, uh, and that was part of one of his speeches. He, he, he literally stood in front of a massive crowd mm. and said this. Mm. Crazy. So interesting. Crazy the, stuff. His pros are... Um, for the way that he went and enacted all of this. This is really interesting, I think you'll find. Providing purpose and direction, 10 out of 10, the pros, he had a real clear vision, he used consistent, consistent application, had goals, and he had very little opposition to his objectives. Interestingly, the cons are that while he was creating all of these systems that were stopping things like ban- he banned political parties, he um, had legal requirements following uh, socially progressive platforms. He was doing it while actually acting as a dictator. So he was building yeah. democracy by dictatorial leadership style. The th- and so it was really contradictory. What he was doing on one hand with these presidential powers is exactly what he was trying to stop. Um, but he knew, he knew it. He, he knew, knew it. he needed to it was give tool. himself space. Yeah. He needed space. He needed to protect himself, and and he always believed that his view was right. Mm. Like right back from when he was an officer cadet, he sought at every conversation. So this is an interesting aspect. He sought in every conversation to ensure that his opinion prevailed. Yeah, and he did that through sheer uh, energy and force of will. Even though he wasn't the smartest guy in the room every time. Who was the other? And, and who was the other guy? Who was the other guy that was doing that? Same time we've talked about him already. Yeah, Hitler and 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 Churchill. Mostly Churchill. Hitler. Yeah. Hitler was just crazy. But Churchill. Churchill. <laughs> Churchill believed and and would bash people mm. into submission verbally <laughs> until they believed with him. Well, and there's and some real so correlation. So did Ataturk. Yes. Yeah. Some yeah real... So did Ataturk. Yeah. Okay. So leadership style again. I gave him ten out of ten. Ataturk's leadership style. You know, from a from a military and. Cap- and political capacity in a military capacity his style was dictatorial delegative um he was a traditional military officer however he also understood providing purpose motivation direction and the power of the energy transference as we said before he was seen probably the gallipoli campaign was really where it came into into sharp focus uh that how Mm. that would be how that worked and you've got to think that he saw if I'm the strong man, but the benevolent sort of dictator, then that works. Um, that that then followed on in the Turkish War of Independence. Um, yeah, and it just he just continued to take it on. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I think you know we've already identified you're a, uh, you're an easy marker. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure I would uh, sort of rate him as ten out of ten, mm. and 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 mainly because. Because of that dictatorial style, I think, you know, he's certainly a transformational leader. There's no, there's no denying that uh, his transformational leader, you know, he was able to develop a shared vision, a culture, and a means for enable uh, that enables transformation 
of an entity, you know, mm. in this case, a nation from its current state, a visionary state, um, by inspiring the followers to maximise contributions for the betterment of the country. Yeah. You know, he was, a, he was a genius, he was a liberator, a founder, he was enlightened, but he was also very, very forceful, um, sometimes aggressive. You know, his personality was very much involved in, in his leadership style and he was quite controlling at times as well. Yeah, and, and it was the same really for him politically too, wasn't it? He, he would lead by sure. example when it suited him. Um, very good at controlling that narrative, and then yep. and then he would behind closed doors he'd ban things that were going to provide him any friction, but perhaps he well, saw that as a tool. Uh, his wife, yeah, and and his divorce from Latifah, who I mentioned previously, was largely around that. Mm. So he wanted his country to mm. go through the reform process in, you know, in a very short period of time, and it was achieved in six years, and yet. His wife wanted him to, you know, stop, stop drinking, you know, like he was a bachelor in the, you know, in the officer's mess. Uh, <laughs> he was, he was, uh, you know, essentially told to, you know, stop um, associating with, uh, with other women and going out and partying and mm. all of that sort of stuff. Mm. And she wasn't especially tolerant to some of his wayward behaviours, of which there were, there were a few. And in fact, he died of cirrhosis of the liver, in fact, uh, in 1938. Wow. And, um, you know, and she was trying to get him to change rapidly and he wouldn't, so mm. he divorced her. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, and that is modern and progressive in itself in that era. Mm. But also, mm. listen, I gave him 10 out of 10 and you've been busting my balls <laughs> over it. But but <laughs> but I'm not saying that it's 10 out of 10 because he's, he's the perfect leader now. I'm saying it's 10 out of 10... Sure because he was the leader that they needed, you know, to, to, to bring the success that they had is absolutely testament to his dictatorial style. And sure. him consistently p- pursuing those objectives like a dog with a bone, you know, he was so effective. And, and I don't see how anyone else would have been effective. I think they would have been just eaten more, up. And more would, of the same. Yeah, more yeah of the absolutely. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? and, and, you know, I'll, I will caveat that by saying that he he showed a bit of flexibility. There was some delegation, you know. There was there was participation, but primarily mm. it was dictatorial. But he didn't allow for other suggestions on how to implement his vision. Um, and this might have led, you know, we we talk about the most resilient team being the most diverse team, and he certainly had diversity around him, but he wasn't listening to it all. Um, so perhaps that limited the growth, you know, of himself and actually Turkey as a whole. Maybe well, the. Fact- in fact, exiled some of his uh, closest advisors after the Reformation was completed. Mm. So, you know, he'd had these guys throughout his career, his mm. military career and through the War of Independence and the Transformation, and then, uh, and then there were, some of them were gone after that. Mm. So he did get what he needed and, and it came at a cost. It certainly came at a cost. Rightio, enduring legacy. I'm going to go with mm. 8 out of 10. Legacy both at home and abroad. He's internationally and domestically widely regarded as an as an excellent general, and 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 he had to. And, he, yep. and if he wasn't there, if he, if he wasn't in Gallipoli, chances yep. are Monash was. You know, someone like Monash would have would have got up over the top. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we yep. already know what a brilliant. You know, one of the most brilliant Australians. He's he's hailed for his principled leadership of Turkish nationalists during the the War of Independence. 
um, yep. provide strong political direction. He, what else? Enduring legacy. You know, he was secular, progressive, yep. massively progressive if you think about what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, an Islamic country in the 1920s and 30s. You know, I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 we've seen the speed that that religion can, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but it spreads mm. fast. And, and he was able to say, hey, great, you know, I assume he said something similar to this, no problems with Islam, but not, yeah. in, not in politics. In politics, we are about politics, not about, yeah, and which... For sure. ...is huge, really. Yeah, he outlawed insults against his own leadership... Uh, sorry, there was an outlawing, sorry, of insults mm. against his leadership in 1951, which sh- which was 20, well, 11, 12 years later after his death. Yeah, they, they enshrined him, essentially. Yeah, and he's he's seen, you know, similar to Winston Churchill and Billy Hughes. Yeah, and famously, Now They Are, now they are Our Sons, speech honouring mm. Gallipoli. Uh, there's yep. a statue of him in every Turkish city or town. And, you know, like we've all got Margaret Thatcher above our kitchen tables in Australia. <laughs> most households have portraits. Not so much. Most, por- most households have portraits of him. I remember in Tully we used to have this amazing photo um, of Queen Elizabeth up on the – and, I mean, she must have been in her late 20s. And as a 20-year-old guy in, in Tully, you'd look up there going, yeah, you know, she's all right. Is that in, can I go to prison for saying something like that? I'm not sure. Possibly. Again, I'm staying out of this one. Yeah. No, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, that was you know, if you think back to so what's what's Tully the um, you know, that's 80s, 70s, and 80s, and that was still. And I mean, in the army today, we've still got photos of the the, the monarchy everywhere. You know, every, part of the yeah. Commonwealth, and so Turkey really similar with photos of Ataturk in every household. Well, now, interesting. Interestingly, so did you know it was similar in Iraq, as you as you know. You know there was there were paintings and pictures of Saddam in every lounge room, effectively. Yeah, yeah, and his but his legacy has come under increased attack and scrutiny by ideological opponents um, within Turkey. Yeah, you know, obviously he's an easy target target because he was stating a good game, but he was being undemocratic and dictatorial, and. You know, there's some criticism around the complicity in the massacres of Armenians and Greek civilians during World War One. Yeah, and the uh, and the Dursum massacre in 1938, where you know 13,000 Kurds were killed. Mm. You know, that's another black spot. You know, he he wasn't he wasn't very good at uh, pairing um, different uh, different backgrounds of you know in groups together. Whilst he had strong vision, he wasn't he had his team, but he didn't necessarily. Uh, excel in 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 bringing large groups together, and I think that's I think that's what detra- detracts from his performance compared with some of the others who could unite multiple nations together. Mm. So that was, and mm. I think so. President um, Erdogan now mm. probably uses some of the very fast manoeuvring back then towards Westernisation as a weakness and sees um, exactly. Kemalism as, well, he sees it as a way to further nationalise Islamic Turkey, which is interesting when you think that it's come full circle in that, in that regard. Um, although there's probably some similarities between how the current president and Ataturk run, run the show. There's some similarities. Well, you know, um, Erdogan's trying to roll back a lot of the advances that were made 
buy Ataturk. Mm. So there's been some regression since then, for sure. Yeah, it's a shame, really. Yeah, and I don't think these diminish the impact or influence of Kamal's leadership, really. It it just demonstrates the fact that they they see the way he led and and the progressiveness of Turkey as as something to fear. Yeah, well, um, I guess we haven't really spoken about his character too much, but he was, you know, he was a firm leader, quiet, uh, calm. Mm. Uh, um, you know, he was generally a, um, a quite a sentimental person. He loved children and music and nature, and mm. and he uh, preferred peace over war, despite his background, of course. You know, essentially, he managed to successfully steer uh, his country between. Nazism and and communism, which was probably no easy feat at the time, and and and, and, a, and and walked a fine line of really fine westernization, yeah. democracy, and the old sort of very very strong historical Islamic um, underpinning yep. of Turkey. It, yeah, I mean the the it's such a beautiful place, and it's such an interesting mm. interesting rich place now, full of history and perspectives and. It'd be a shame to see that go the annals of history as as a as just a spot where it was once, you know, you were once able to go there, and in the future you can't. Yeah, for sure. You know, I um, I saw a quote from um, his chief of staff, mm. and um, you know, as he as he passed away, his chief of staff even even then said, "Look, you know, here's a piece of history slipping away." Wow. You know, so right then on his deathbed, mm. chief of staff was there, mm. and. Uh, even then, it was identified that you know we're we're seeing the end of an era. No um, one to carry the mantle. Yeah, exactly. And he, you know, he single handedly. Well, that lowers the score if you think about it. If you, if you haven't been able to set up someone in your absence to continue your life's work, then True. then how successful a leader have you really been? Well, I think that's partly because he did it so quickly. Yeah. So he did it. In, he did the transformation in six years. Now, I think yeah. um, that part of his problem is the fact that. Had he taken a little longer, had he taken twelve years, you know, you probably he probably would have been able to be less abrasive with some of the institutions. Um, he, he was drinking a liter of alcohol a day, mate. <laughs> like he was. He knew he didn't have time. He knew he didn't have time. Yeah. You know what? Um, uh, there's there's no way you can be running uh, at that level. Mm. Um, being so energetic, mm. doing so much. I think maybe he knew he didn't have time. He he was always a heavy drinker. I he wonder was, if he, he was, was profoundly un- profoundly affected by Gallipoli and and the years later, and that turned him to the drink. Perhaps the horrors of war, you know. I and mean, we're not talking about you know patrolling through the back ends of you know far north Queensland. We're talking about being bombed yeah. every day for hours, and then seeing people run at you with yes. bayonets. Yes. You know. So how it ended for them. Mm. Oh, look, I gave him 10 out of 10, but I wish I hadn't now. I look at it and think, you know, when you're drinking a litre of alcohol a day, you die at 57. It's not ended well. Could have ended better. Yeah, let me change that to 5 out of 10. First time we've ever done but what, this. <laughs> but what about, But what about? Yeah, have I swayed you the other way? You have, because um, I, I don't, I just don't. I just, I think he's done so much in such a quick amount of time, but he had so much more to give and it's just a, a life that's gone, you know, re, you know, and if he had have been even more modernised, more, more Become and then if he had done something like raised three political parties from his own political party that have differing opinions and then let the people mm. have the vote, 
we could have seen an amazing democratic society that and i mean you know we're not not necessarily saying that democracy is right or wrong because i mean what we're seeing at the moment around the world who bloody knows but at least at least it's the best we've got you know and and he had more to give i think um 15 years. i wish he'd been around longer yeah i wish he'd been around longer and i think the the transformation would have been far would have been embedded far better and, and I wonder what would have happened in the Second World War. Yeah, true. You know, you had someone like that, decisive, right, yeah. this, you know. Look, I gave him overall 42 out of 50. Well, it was going to be 47, but for deducted points because he drank too much. Uh, you know, he, he used his inspiration to launch himself into the position as Turkey's war hero, which then, you know, he ended yeah. up becoming, you know, in, he, he then pushed independence, Saw him guide through the nationalists. He sought to create an independent Turkey with himself as a leader, and he and he did it. Um, the father of independent, you know, Turkey, and he was inspirational, motivational, although di- dictatorial. He reformed an old, archaic Ottoman, you know, really ancient, old system, really into a vision for a new, secular, progressive Turkey, which he did through creating an ideology of Kemalism which really was taking the best, as we saw, as you quite rightly outlined, the best from from all those Western and European successful democracies, and he taught the best of them. And he, he ended, his life ended when he was, he was the founding president, its greatest leader of the 20th century. Um, and he's, he's woven through the social fabric of Turkey, ingrained in them probably much the way that, you know, I guess, who would be similar in Australia in that way? Not sure that we've had no. anyone as trans- transformational. Some um, people would say maybe John Howard, um, but, you know, that is really content. And he definitely didn't have the same level of support that someone yeah. like Ataturk had. Um, I think, I, th- I think you know, he, he saw him. himself he, he saw himself as a, as a Washington. Um, there's, no, there's no question of that. In, in fact, he's, you know, he has stated it on, on a couple of occasions. You so know, so here's me, my question to you then, Trent. So if we if we say let's let's round this out, right? Forty two out of fifty, done. Mm. Okay. It's not 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 right. not brilliant, not not terrible, but amazing for Turkey at that time. The modern world now, with mm. the pace of technology and the twenty four hour news cycle and the existence of um, conspiracy theories spreading faster than truth, are we ever gonna see leaders like this again? Like your Churchill's like your Eisenhower's, you know, like your Washingtons, like your like your um, Kamal, like your Ataturks. Are we, you know, are we going to see people like that again? Yes. Do you think? I think circumstances will always occur in in human history that will bring leaders to the fore in the environment that they are faced with. Right. What year are we in? 2020. 2020, so it is the 6th of November 2020. In four years' time, I think we will see President Obama, Michelle Obama, and she will be one of the greatest leaders of the modern era. I'm calling that out now. And I want people to come back to this podcast and go, that Connolly is an international relations genius. But that's what maybe that's what the world needs, you know. We need that. Someone. Someone. We need a um, hero. <laughs> we, we certainly need. We certainly need someone, and uh, or a number of someone's. Mm. 
Um, but as we said during the Churchill podcast, we haven't needed, we haven't needed someone since Churchill, as it, you know, since that time of mm. World War Two. We haven't needed leaders like that. And there now, hasn't been a requirement. And now maybe we do. I well, I, I think there are bigger challenges to come, mm. and uh, uh, I just think that most people uh, barely achieve their goals and visions in their lifetime now. Like mm. most most people on the planet have some goals, some visions, and most don't even get to those. Mm. This particular individual uh, had a vision around the complete reformation of his country wow. and did it in six, six years. <laughs> no big deal. You know, it's, so, so when we compare Ataturk to pretty much anybody else on the planet ever, uh, he's, he's right up there. He's so, successful. So, you know, we can – he's successful. We Genghis Karnish. Uh, yeah, I mean, come we on, can that's pick what we're talking about. Yeah. Indeed, right? Yeah, yeah, amazing. And when we say leadership is getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it, six years, you had to get a lot of people doing what you wanted them to do and they wanted to do it. Mm. Incredible. We can't even get people to wear face masks. Alrighty, that's it for this week on the Warrior You podcast. We've uh, pulled this one apart. What do we got next week? Who we got? Oh, good gracious. We've got next week the Shah of Iran. That'll be interesting. Holy dooly. And then we're going to get into some Americans. Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. Then we're going to go Oliver Cromwell. And I thought we'd go back in history and go Napoleon. Um, we're, getting, we're counting them down. We're getting towards Marcus Aurelius, mate. Excellent. 20 weeks to go and then we're at Otto Scorzini. This is how I'm keeping you hanging on. <laughs> All righty. Thanks again, Trent. See you next week. Thanks, Brian. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 